turned it off. Oh, I tur- there you go. I'm on. I-, I had to take my son to the restroom, so I turned it off and forgot to turn it back on. So, good morning. <laughs> if you were with us uh, last Sunday night for our members' meeting, um, you might be surprised that there's not a portable baptistry over here already. If you weren't here, you have no idea what that's in reference to, and that's okay. Um, For those of you that were here, the elders wouldn't do that to you. Uh, Not that soon, anyways. It's on back order. Just teasing, just teasing. I I want you to know, um, I love this church. I really do. I love this church. I love you. And um, one of the greatest joys of my life is to gather with you every Sunday and to see your faces, and to sing together, and to teach God's Word. Thank you for being a part of this family here. Uh, If you're not already in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and turn there now to Matthew 5, verse 38, the passage that was read earlier. While you're turning there, I want you to think with me about Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, the Renaissance artist who is praised by many as one of the greatest artists of all time. At a mere 26 years old, he accepted a commission to create his most famous work, the Statue of David. He began carving the massive block of white marble on September the 13th, 1501, and he would not finish until January 25th, 1504. And we have mercifully cropped part of the photo for you. (laughs) Uh, Upon completion, the statue measured at 17 feet tall and over 12,000 pounds. Today, the statue is visited by over 1.2 million people every single year. An An old legend suggests that Pope Alexander once asked Michelangelo the secret of his genius. And Michelangelo allegedly responded, it's simple, I just remove everything that is not David. In some ways, Jesus' words in our text this morning are like Michelangelo's statue of David. Jesus' words are beautiful, massive, intimidating, They're also incredibly popular. Jesus' words in this text have influenced massive historical figures like Leo Tolstoy and Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and more. But much like Michelangelo's massive slab of marble, the true meaning of Jesus' words here are often shrouded by misunderstanding. So with God's help today... What we hope to do is to carve away everything that is not what Jesus intended so that we can see the beauty of what Jesus actually meant. Now, just to remind you of the context of this passage, Jesus is preaching a sermon to his disciples about what it looks like to live in this life on this earth as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's contrasting in this part of his sermon, he's contrasting kingdom righteousness, the way that his, his followers should live, 
with the, the popular righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Six times in this section of the sermon, he says, you have heard that, but I say to you this. We talked about the prohibition of murder, and Jesus prohibits the anger that drives it. The prohibition of adultery, and Jesus prohibits the lust that precedes it. He looks beyond the provisions for divorce to the creator's intention for marriage. He looks beyond the common thinking about swearing oaths to God's desire for his people to be truthful. And today in our text, Jesus looks beyond the law's teaching about justice in the community to how God's people should respond when personally mistreated. But before we can understand how we as God's people are supposed to respond when we're mistreated, we need to, like Michelangelo, carve away at everything that is not what Jesus intended in this text. So with God's help, we're going to look at several, uh, four, actually four incorrect interpretations of Jesus's words here, and then we'll explain what Jesus does mean and apply it to our lives today. Let me read the text for us one more time, and then we'll begin. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Four incorrect interpretations before we look at what this text actually means for us today. Here's the first incorrect interpretation. Jesus is not contradicting the law. Some people would look at this text and imagine that Jesus is, is looking at the law of Moses and he's saying, we're done with that. That's wrong. I'm going to give you a, a new and a better way. Now, we've talked about how Jesus has fulfilled the law and how it does not apply to us as followers of Jesus in the same way. But Jesus is not here to contradict what Moses taught. You look at verse 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The law Jesus references here is sometimes called the, the lex talionis. It's a Latin phrase that literally means the law of retaliation. And unlike some of the other passages we've looked at so far, Jesus here is actually directly quoting from the Old Testament. In fact, this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is actually repeated three times in the Mosaic law. In Exodus 21, 24, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, and in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. Listen to Leviticus 24. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That teaching, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, is repeated several times, as we said, throughout the Old Testament. So Gandhi 
and Martin Luther King Jr. both, when they approached this passage, they said something like this, an eye for an eye makes the whole world what? Blind. And so they, they come to a passage like this and they say, aha, Jesus, he's, he's doing away with the law of Moses. He's contradicting, he's rejecting the logic of the law of Moses. That's not what Jesus is doing. The lex talionis, this law of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was designed for the Israelite Jewish judicial system. Judicial system. So this was the law that governed how someone was to be punished if they harmed another person. So in other words, if you go and uh, attacked your neighbor, there was a, a specific set of instructions for how the, the attacker should be dealt with in the law. This was designed to protect people from undue, harsh, cruel, and unusual punishment for committing a crime. So for example, a few hundred years before Moses and the Code of Hammurabi, uh, listen to one of the penalties that would be given to someone for injuring a person. Uh, in the Code of Hammurabi, it says, if a free man struck another free man, he paid a fine. But if a slave struck a free man, his ear would be cut off. That's the Code of Hammurabi. So different punishments based on your social class, based on your economic standing. The law of Moses comes along and says, no, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The punishment should fit the crime. That's the principle of the lex talionis. That's the principle of the law of retaliation. Jesus is not here to undermine that principle for the court of law. What Jesus is doing is saying that you cannot apply that principle to your day-to-day -day interactions with your neighbor. In other words, in the court of law, it might be well and just for there to be an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but you don't get to decide that when your neighbor sins against you. See, by the time the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders and the scribes are, are arriving on the scene and they're here, they're the kind of religious leaders of the day, they're grown to be, be accepted this way of thinking that if someone attacks you, you get to attack them back in kind. Jesus says no. Jesus says we do not have the authority to exact vengeance, to execute revenge. And one of the reasons why this is such a bad idea is because usually if, if you attack someone for attacking you, usually you ratchet it up, don't you? They hit me once, I'll hit them twice. This is why in, in movies like John Wick, you know, the, the main antagonist kills dozens and dozens of people because they killed his dog. Now, he shouldn't have killed his dog. But at some point, we, this cycle of revenge continues to get ratcheted up, and Jesus says no. So Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament law. He's arguing about misapplying it. You can't apply a law that was given for the judicial system to your personal relationships with other people. That's the first misinterpretation. Second is that Jesus is not speaking absolutely. Jesus is not speaking absolutely. Most of you know that our family uh, just almost a year ago uh, finalized the adoption for our son, Ezekiel. Um, and one of the challenges of incorporating Ezekiel into our family uh, has been his tendency to absolutize every commandment that he's given, every bit of instruction. 
So as we're teaching him English and he's struggling with his cleft palate and trying to get used to talking and all that sort of stuff, um, we were trying to teach him that he was allowed to say no. So there was a time we would tell him what to do and, and he didn't think that he was allowed to say, no, I don't want to do that. So we would say, Zeke, do you want to go to your room? And he would say, yes. And we said, okay, go to your room. And he'd turn around and head towards his room crying. We said, Zeke, you can say no. You can say no, mommy. I don't want to go to my room. And so then once we taught him that, every time we told him or every time he wanted to say no, his answer was always no, mommy. He couldn't say mommy, so no, mommy. He thought, when we said, you can say no, mommy, he thought, no, mommy was the word for no. He absolutized it. Just the other day, we were eating dinner together as a family, and uh, we've, we try to teach him manners, you know, and so when he responds to dad, we try to teach him to say, yes, sir, or no, sir, and uh, he says something, uh, his mom asks him a question, and he says, no, sir. We say, no, 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 you, with mommy, you say, no, ma'am, and then Jonah says something to him, and he says, no, ma'am. It's like every single bit, where it's like absolutizing every single law. And we're working with them on that. But we tend to do that when we read the Bible too. You know, it's easier just to turn every law into an absolute statement without looking at the intent behind it. We saw last week in our uh, study of oaths, how some denominations and religious traditions actually absolutize Jesus' teaching about oaths. And they say it's, it's never okay to say an oath, so you can't be in the armed forces, you, you can't go and be, you know, serve jury duty, you, you can't serve in civic office, but that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus here intends. If we took this commandment absolutely, it could have serious effects. Just look at verse 39 again with me. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, in the 19th century, a Russian novelist and social reformer named Leo Tolstoy said that it was this phrase that revolutionized his worldview and became the key for him to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The problem for Tolstoy is that he misunderstood what Jesus meant. Listen to what Tolstoy said. He said that in this phrase, Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court because they resist evil and even return evil for evil. So for Tolstoy, the same principle applied for the police, the army, the government, he was what's called a Christian anarchist because he believed that it was wrong for anyone to ever resist evil from anybody. That's absolutizing Jesus' statement, turning it into an absolute rule. If we did that, if Jesus means here that we can never resist any evil anywhere under any circumstances, think about what we would have to do. Parents, will not be able to discipline their children when they sin. And little kids, you might be tempted to say amen there, but your mom and dad are near you and they can hear it. You could not resist the devil when he tempts you. You couldn't resist bad theology. We couldn't resist sin in our own churches. We couldn't resist the powerful when they unjustly oppress the weak. Governments couldn't resist the evildoers in society. That's not what Jesus means. When Jesus says, don't resist the evil one, he's not making an absolute statement. He's referring to a specific type of evil. 
to misunderstand this, we would quickly become like the saint that Martin Luther described who, uh, one, who would let the lice nibble at him and refuse to kill them on account of this text maintaining that he had to suffer and could not resist evil. I don't know about you, but when I see a house fly flying around in my house, I'm resisting that evil. And I praise the Lord for giving me victory over my enemies every time I put one to death. But to absolutize this statement, you would have to say you cannot resist any evil in your life under any circumstances. That's not what Jesus intends. So carve that misunderstanding away. He's talking about the specific type of evil of God's people being mistreated. We'll dive into that a little bit later. Let's carve away another incorrect interpretation. Jesus is not speaking to everybody. This is important. Jesus is not speaking to everybody. Imagine if we took the words in this text and we applied it to what's going on in Ukraine. Just think about that for a second. Should Ukraine refuse to resist the land-grabbing advances of a power-hungry dictator? Should the Ukrainian ground for themselves as Jesus preached that sermon? You're here, you're listening, and maybe there's some things that are helpful for you, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, primarily this is not for you. What you need is not teaching on how to respond to your enemies. You need Christ. Here in this sermon, Jesus' primary audience is the Christian. That's most of us in this room. He's talking to you. Let's carve away one more misinterpretation. Jesus is not speaking exhaustively. He's not speaking exhaustively. At first glance, you might read this passage. You might say, man, there's not a lot here that really applies to me. Right? I mean... Some of you have probably never been slapped on the right cheek. My wife slaps me on the left all the time, but never on the right. Or probably none of you have been sued for your tunic. And you probably don't own a, a cloak. Most of us haven't been forced to go a mile, military notwithstanding. The rest of us, nobody's forced us to go a mile. Maybe the only example that Jesus gives that you can relate with is someone begging or borrowing something from you. You can relate to that, but the rest of it is, you know, you can't really relate to. You can't really identify with that. Jesus is not speaking exhaustively in this passage. What he's doing is he's giving us some examples of types of mistreatment that Christians might endure, and he's saying, here's the principle. Here's how you're supposed to respond when others mistreat you. He's speaking in, in principles and examples. So let's, having carved away all those misinterpretations, let's look at what Jesus does mean for us as his followers today. Jesus is speaking to Christians who are mistreated. Jesus is speaking to Christians who are mistreated. And let's just stop for a second and let's admit, just like we did last week when we looked at lying, all of us have been lied to and all of us have lied. All of us have been mistreated as followers of Jesus. And if we're honest, all of us have mistreated other people 
as followers of Jesus. Jesus here is speaking to you who are being mistreated as a Christian. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus and you're enduring mistreatment, these words are for you today. Whether the mistreatment is from your boss or your coworkers or another Christian or your spouse or your children or your parents or your neighbors, these words are for you. Jesus is speaking to Christians who are mistreated. Here's the big idea I want you to get from the passage. Christians should respond to personal mistreatment with grace. Christians should respond to personal mistreatment with grace. Now, I emphasize that word personal because here there is value and dignity and glory in standing up for the mistreatment of someone else, okay? Someone else around you is mistreated. It's wise and good often for you to stand up for them. That's right. But I'm talking about when you're mistreated. When you personally, Christian, are mistreated, how are you supposed to respond? The answer is with grace. So Jesus gives us four illustrations of types of mistreatments that Christians sometimes endure. There's a slap, there's a lawsuit, forced labor, and the loss of property. And these four illustrations, I want you to notice four upside-down values of the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, this this is for you. If you're a Christian, you should, number one, value your offender more than your honor. You should value the person offending you more than your own personal dignity and honor. That's the principle behind verse 39. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is not arguing against self-defense here. He's not saying, you know, if someone comes up and and slaps you in the face and and tries to pick a fight with you, right? They're trying to beat you up or or rob your house or hurt your family that you can't defend yourself. He's not saying it's it's wrong to have a safety team to protect your church in the unlikely event of an attack. He's not saying that you can't have a gun to protect your home or a security system. He's not saying, hear me, he's not saying that a wife or a child has to endure the physical assaults of an abusive husband or father. He's not saying that. Sister, if you find yourself in that position, Jesus is not telling you to turn the other cheek if your husband is abusing you. That's not what this is about. You need to understand that. He's talking about insult. It's significant that Jesus talks about someone slapping you in the right cheek. Now, in that day, uh, most everybody would only use their right hand. Their left hand was considered unclean, and usually a slap was a backhanded slap. And so you're slapping someone in the right cheek with the back of your right hand. This was, this was not an attempt to attack somebody. This was not an attempt to injure someone. This was an attempt to insult another person. This is one of the biggest insults that you could have, to have someone come up and strike you in the face. Jesus says, in that instance, when you are being insulted, do not insult back. 
In fact, it would be better for you to receive double the insult than to strike back and insult the person that's insulting you. Value your offender more than your honor. Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of God, gives a really powerful example of this kind of love. It was the early 1990s, and he was a part of a team providing aid to starving Somalians. And as the hunger crisis continued in Somalia, the, the citizens there became belligerent, even antagonistic towards Americans. They felt like they were being, um, they were being occupied. Now, ironically, the people that were trying to help them were often being mistreated. It got so bad that the aid workers, like Nick, had to be guarded by American troops. And one particular day, uh, after receiving her allotment of daily fruit, uh, food, a, a wrinkled old woman became angry. She called the food animal feed, and she began screaming at a Christian aid worker named Bubba, who had taken three months of personal vacation to care for needy people. She screamed at him, she cursed at him, and he smiled at her. She screamed and cursed louder, and he smiled wider. She felt like, at some point, that he wasn't getting the message. She's trying to insult this man for this gift of food that is really not worth to be fed to an animal in her mind. But he's not getting the picture. He's just smiling at her. And so she, she leans over. She grabs a handful of the animal feed and throws it in his face. And Nick Ripkin, who was there beside Bubba, said that all of a sudden he heard a bunch of metallic clicks all around him as all the soldiers locked and loaded, preparing for whatever was about to happen next. And everybody watched to see what Bubba was going to do. Now, in Somalia, in that culture, it would have been acceptable after receiving an insult, a public insult like that, especially from a woman, it would have been acceptable in that culture for him to slap her back, to even publicly abuse her. But Bubba wiped the grit out of his eyes. He looked at her, smiled, and sang, you ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. And all of a sudden, everybody breathed a big sigh of relief. The woman angrily walked away, and Bubba continued to serve those around him. Now listen, that took the love of Jesus to take an insult, a public insult, and to respond with grace. Let me ask you a question, Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, how do you respond when you're insulted? When someone assaults your character, your work ethic, the way you relate to your wife and children, someone falsely accuses you, someone makes fun of you for being a Christian, someone makes fun of something about you when they insult you, how do you respond? Do you respond with grace? Or is your first instinct to bow up and lash back? Jesus says when we're mistreated, we're to turn the other cheek. 
We're to love those who are offending us more than our own honor. Is that you, Christian? Let me just stop for just a second here, church, and just say, we've got to learn how to do this with each other. We're going to have a hard time doing that in the world if we can't even respond that way amongst brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question, Christian, member of this church, has anyone in this room, you don't have to answer out loud or point, has anyone in this room ever insulted you? If you say, no, no one's ever insulted me here, you probably don't know people well enough yet. You're probably one of those folks, and I love you. You come in real quick on Sunday and leave real quick and don't really hang out long enough to get insulted. If you hang out here long enough, you're going to get insulted. You're going to be insulted by somebody, and you're going to insult somebody. How are you going to respond in that moment? Give them the silent treatment? Gossip to somebody else? Lash out back at them? Or love them more than your own honor, your own dignity? That's the first upside-down value of the kingdom. Second, not only do we value our offenders more than our honor, Christians should value peace more than possessions. You should value peace more than possessions. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And Jesus is not saying that you should let other people rob you blind. He's not saying it's wrong to lock your doors or have a security system or a safe. Jesus is talking about a lawsuit. Notice, he says, if someone would sue you and take your tunic. This is a formal lawsuit and a court of law. It's not a thief trying to steal something from you. This is someone suing you in court, okay? But it's interesting and important to notice the articles of clothing that Jesus mentions here in this passage. He says, if someone's trying to uh, sue you for your tunic, what's a tunic? Uh, this would be the softer fabric that was worn as kind of like an undershirt. This, this would be really valuable uh, for many people. And then the cloak. The cloak would be even more valuable. Cloak was an outer garment, and it would, be, uh, it would be your blanket at night. Some folks, if it was warm, they would roll it up as their pillow. The cloak was really valuable, and most people only had one cloak. In fact, it was so valuable that in the Mosaic law, in the law of Moses, your cloak was actually protected by law. You imagine that? An article of clothing protected by law. It was. Uh, look at on the screens at Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, God says, for I am compassionate. So in a lawsuit, your cloak couldn't be legally required, right? If someone's suing you for your tunic, the law protected you from them taking your cloak. That was protected by law. And yet, Jesus comes along the scene and he says, listen, value peace with your neighbor so much that you'll be willing even to forfeit what is protected by law for the sake of peace with your neighbor. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Is that the way we live, Christian? Are we willing to forego even our beloved treasured possessions if that's what it takes to have peace with our neighbor? Are we willing to do that? The family feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys lasted for over 30 years. It's steeped in American lore. Uh, Although the origin of the feud is disputed, many believe that the war began with a dispute over the ownership of a Razorback hog. That's West Virginia for you. No offense, any West Virginians. We know we love you. We love you all. Razorback hog, and that causes this feud that leads to 30 years of fighting and over 60 deaths. That makes sense in the world. It shouldn't make sense for Christians. It shouldn't make sense for Christians. Follower of Jesus in this room, you ought to treasure peace with your neighbor, as far as it depends upon you, more than your stuff. Do you treasure peace that much? Again, we've got to be willing to do this even among ourselves, right? We're going to have a hard time doing it out there if we can't do that in here. How much does it matter to you to be at peace with the brother or sister in this room that you're at odds with? Are you willing to forego what you feel is owed you, what you feel you deserve? Or will you, must you, insist on your rights? Are you willing to let go so that you can have peace? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can value peace more than possessions if you really believe that none of this lasts forever anyways. Jesus is going to say a little bit later in the sermon that don't, not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Listen, everything that you own is going to burn. Everything. But the people in your life are going to live forever. Lost or saved, they're going to live forever somewhere. If you really believe that, it ought to be a little bit easier to say, you know what, they're going to live forever. This stuff is not. And if peace requires me letting go of this to love this person, then I'll do it. I'll do it. Followers of Jesus, kingdom citizens, Christians, should value peace more than possessions. Number three, we should value our oppressors more than our freedom. Value your oppressor more than your freedom. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now remember, Jesus is speaking during a time that the nation of Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. Roman law allowed soldiers to force a civilian to carry his cargo for up to a mile. So you could be a carpenter 
or a farmer doing your work, minding your own business, and a Roman soldier could come up to you, and they were allowed by law to force you to drop whatever you were doing to carry their cargo for them for up to a mile. Jesus comes along in, this, in the middle of this really, really po politically tumultuous time, right? We think our times are politically tumultuous. They're tumultuous then too. Where, where many Jews were saying, let's kill the Romans. They're looking for a Messiah that's going to set them free, start a war, and deliver them from Roman oppression. They're thinking Jesus is going to say, he tries to force you to go a mile, get rid of him. Jesus says, go too. That would be staggering. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus is telling his people to value your oppressor more than your own freedom. I know we're Americans. I know freedom is a good thing. I'm very grateful for my freedom here in this country. Grateful for those of you that have fought and served for our freedom. That is good. And yet, if someone threatens your freedom, will you love them more than the freedom itself? Jesus is not saying personal freedoms don't matter. He's not saying they're unimportant. He is saying you ought to personally be willing to forfeit your rights so that you can love those even who oppress you. One example of this is in the book, The Hiding Place. Many know the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family who secretly hid Jewish people from Nazi oppression. And uh, eventually, over time, they were betrayed, and someone informed the Nazis about what they were doing. And they were captured and put into a concentration camp. Uh, as Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were being processed into Ravensbrück concentration camp, uh, Corey harbored hatred in her heart towards the guards you read the story, you, you remember the harsh and cruel and shameful treatment that Corey and her sister endured as they were processed into that concentration camp. Things that were common for Nazis in that day. C Corey hated these soldiers. She hated these guards. But her sister Betsy said, if people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. We must find the way you and I, no matter how long it takes. One night, Corey was in her bed and she couldn't sleep. The thing that kept plaguing her thoughts was the man that had betrayed them. Because of this man, they were here in this horrible, God-forsaken place. Because of this man who betrayed them, her, she was separated from her father and the rest of her family. Her father would eventually die, as would her sister Betsy. And she's lying in bed that night, unable to sleep. And she says to her sister, doesn't it bother you what he did? Don't you feel anything? And Betsy said, oh, yes, Corey, terribly. I felt for him ever since I knew. And I pray for him whenever his name comes into my mind, how terribly he must be suffering. Over time, through her sister's example, and as God worked in her heart, Corey was able to love even her oppressors. But her story is raw. 
you read that story and you read a woman who's struggling with real hatred towards those who are oppressing her. And as the gospel penetrates into her heart, she is eventually freed to love. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Let me ask you, Christian, are you willing to love even those who might oppress you? Are you willing to love them? Are you willing to go the extra mile with them? Once again, listen to me. You can do this, Christian. You can value oppressors more than freedom if you really believe that you're the one that's really free. Your oppressors, they're enslaved. They think they're free. They're not. You're free. And the worst that your oppressors can do to you is set you free forever into the presence of Jesus Christ. And what your oppressors need more than anything is to be liberated from sin. And that liberation only comes by grace through faith in Christ. And you know that, Jesus. Show him. Show them that love. Tell them. Love them anyways. Are you willing to love your oppressors? Value them more than your own freedom. Number four. Value your neighbor's well-being more than your own. Value your neighbor's well-being more than your own. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Following Jesus does not mean that you always have to say yes to everyone that asks you for anything in every circumstance, right? Right? This is not like a spiritual version of Jim Carrey's Yes Man, where, you know, anytime someone asks you for anything, you have to say yes. And yet, I think Jesus would call us to say yes a lot more than we do. I think Jesus would call me to say yes a lot more than I do. In the Sermon on this text, John Piper offers, I think, a helpful illustration to think through the nuances of this command. He says, imagine that you want to give to a poor neighbor down the street. She's on welfare. She has six kids. She doesn't have a washing machine. To go to the laundromat down several streets over is a huge burden for this mom. You know what? I can't even imagine going to the laundromat with six kids. That sounds like a nightmare to me. It's a huge burden. You want to buy her a $600 washing machine. You're not that well off either. You don't just have $600 lying around. So you save for a little bit. And finally, you've got enough money to bless this single mom and buy her a washing machine. You got your $600 out from the bank and you go to buy her a washing machine and you come across a, a homeless man and he says, I really need $600. Would you please give me something or anything? Do you have to give to that man? Or can you say no so you can give to the woman? See, I don't think what Jesus intends here is that we have to say yes to every single request. What he is saying is there ought to be something in us that values our neighbor's well-being above our own. We are quick to lend towards our neighbors, to give, to sacrifice for them and for their well-being. So whose well-being matters more to you, Christian? Yours or your neighbor's? 
Are you willing to love and give and serve those that ask of you? You know, when we carve away at all the misconceptions in this passage, we see a beautiful call to show grace even when we're mistreated. But those who have eyes to see should see something more. In this passage, we see a portrait of Jesus himself. He did not fight for his own dignity and his own honor. He even gave his own cheeks to those who pulled out his beard and smacked his face. He did not hide his face from disgrace. Jesus himself endured personal insult without paying back and retaliating. Jesus did not insist on his own possessions. In fact, Jesus is there suffering on the cross, crucified with soldiers at the foot of the cross, playing games and gambling over his own clothing. And what does Jesus do in that moment but pray for their peace? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not insist on his own freedoms as he was falsely accused, as he was flogged and crucified. And he freely gave all that he had, even his own life, for those who deserve nothing. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, Jesus did that for you. <coughs> Jesus did that for you. When you've been loved like that, you can love like that. He did that for you when you were his enemy. Should we not also love those who would mistreat us in the same way? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just plead with you. This is the love that you have been looking for all your life. A love that sees you at your worst and gives its all to redeem you. Not because you're good, but because he is good. If you're in this room and you don't know this Jesus, we invite you to trust in him today. And if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, we plead with you, let us love like this today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ we thank you for his sinless life. We thank you for how he suffered in our place. We thank you that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. We thank you that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation for us. Because we have been loved like this, help us to love like this. God, I don't know the conflicts that are going on in this room this morning. But there might be some, they're being mistreated right now. Maybe there's somebody watching online and they didn't come because they were mistreated and, and they just couldn't be in the room with this group this morning. Maybe there's someone that was mistreated last week and, and they're still hurting from the pain. Maybe we've mistreated each other God, help our hearts and minds to be fixed on things of heaven 
to remember that in Christ, we are free. To remember that in Christ, we have everything that we need. To remember that in Christ, we are honored. To remember that in Christ, we have everything. Help us to meditate on that love so that we can love others the same way. And we do this, Lord, not so that we might draw attention to ourselves, not so that we might say you are great or we are great, but may we do it to say we love because he first loved us. And because we've been loved like this, we can love like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.